Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. This week, tension in the coalition between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, ostensibly over the budget. But was this a case of same-same but different engaging in some conscious uncoupling, as some have described it? It started with an opinion piece in the Irish Independent from Fine Gael junior ministers Jennifer Carroll McNeil, Martin Hayden and Peter Burke, who all thought we should get a bit spendy-spendy with some of next year's budget surplus of £16 billion, specifically a tax break of €1,000 for middle-income earners up early and all that. Both Claire and Sarah had ministers on the line. First up, Claire, with Minister for European Affairs Peter Burke. Oh, and by the way, the budget next October. There's an election on the horizon and I suppose one way to counter the electoral threat from Sinn Féin is to spend. Is that what's going on here? No, absolutely not, Claire. What we want to do is really grasp the opportunity that we have now in terms of the surplus that is coming into the Exchequer. But we know there's huge opportunity in that, but equally there's significant risk. And that's why one of the key platforms of the strategy is trying to put more money into our strategic reserve fund. Currently, the reserve fund has about €6 billion on it, and it's almost 75% full in terms of the cap that's on it. So we need to repurpose that fund and ensure, like the government did during COVID, that when our economy hit the shock, that there is money to put into our economy, because at that particular point in time, private investment collapses. And that's why you need a strong methodology to resuscitate our economy like we did during COVID. And again, that protects uh, our workers, our families against economic shocks. And in his view, this is economically prudent. You mentioned risk and the Commission on Taxation have said the state is going to suffer a severe funding shortfall in the next five to 15 years. The overall level of revenue raised from taxation and PRSI will have to rise. Now, are you saying that you should ignore that advice? No, absolutely not. That's why we're saying we need to increase our strategic reserve fund. We need to have a big chest there, a big reserve to ensure that when our economy hits the shock that we have money to put back into it. But, but are, you going, to, are strategy, you going to cause the shock by reducing taxation? Absolutely not. No, I'll explain this to you, Claire. Equally, our key strategy in Senegal is to ensure that we give and reward middle-income earners because what that does, it brings more employment into our economy. And if you look at the figures, we've put 68,600 new people into our economy from 2021 to 2022 working. And what that means is that 68,000 families are providing an extra income into our economy and the government is benefiting in terms of tax revenue through that. So we're growing our economy. And that's what Senegal's core model is. Keep the engine strong. Keep growing your economy. That's how you get better public services. And that's how you invest in our future. And one of the key things we're trying to do here is that we really need to invest more money in capital expenditure, in hospitals, schools, uh, roads, infrastructure, childcare, energy. We have a whole new area in terms of offshore energy that we can grasp with both hands now we've had our energy auction and that can be a real a game changer for our country in terms of bringing in revenue and those are the policies we need to implement and accelerate and invest on. That all explained, Claire came back at him. So it's back to the McCreevy days of when I have it, I'll spend it. No, that's absolutely not what I'm proposing. That's actually what Sinn Féin are proposing. Spend everything. That's what they wanted to do before It's all COVID. about Sinn Féin though, isn't it? You saw the results in the local absolutely elections not. at the weekend. 
No, what we're very clear on here is that, and we've been very clear as a party in the last budget where we put €831 back into the pockets of middle-income earners in budget 2023, we want to continue that trajectory because we know families are feeling the sharp edges of inflation. We know the weekly shop has increased. Energy costs are very difficult for families to bear. And for people who are going out, working hard, making our economy run and turn improving our public services they need to be rewarded and we see the evidence when you do reward people who are working hard in our economy more money comes into our mm. economy and that's been the trajectory over the last uh, number of years you, under good management by Fine Gael, okay. but exceptional work by communities right and across you, the country. Minister Peter Burke with Clare. Meanwhile with Sarah on drive time another of the signatories this time junior minister Martin Hayden who also said that these measures were to support the squeezed middle. It's understood that uh, Mr. Varadkar endorses this call from his three junior ministers. I assume that means that he's he's totally behind you, does it? Well, look, the Taoiseach has been on the record as previously as saying that, you know, we want to, Fine Gael will stand up for Middle Ireland and is on for putting money back in people's pockets, seeing the challenges that there are, um, you know, ensuring that we make work pay for those um, who are in that squeeze middle. And, um, you know, that's about improvements people pay, having an income tax package as part of the upcoming budget and pushing for further reductions in the cost of going to school, college, childcare, okay. and healthcare. How much would this cost, this proposal? So look, that detail has to be worked out. What we're talking about here is the broad parameters and the broad approach. Obviously, you know, we will have interventions there that will support, uh, there will be a package there for the most vulnerable in society that are on uh, fixed incomes because of the, the, the damage that high inflation is doing at this time to their incomes. So, um, so sorry, when three Finnegar ministers are, are writing an article uh, in, in a national newspaper saying that uh, workers should get a tax break, uh, workers on an average rate of 52,000 euros should get a tax break of more than 1,000 euros, you haven't costed that proposal. Well, of at least a thousand euro, but like ultimately here, what we would see is in the last last year's budget, workers in that sphere uh, were better off to the tune of eight hundred and thirty-one euro. Um, after but you that, haven't after costed the, the proposal. Is that and the correct? budget before that was four hundred, and we believe we need to do more um, because people are being hit with really significant costs um, of living. But also the fact then that you know there, this is about balance, and this would be negotiated between the three coalition partners. But when you look at uh, from a spending sorry, perspective sorry, and sorry, significant. Martin, Hold on a second. If Sinn Féin did that, you'd be all over them. If Sinn Féin came out calling for uh, tax breaks or tax cuts of up to €1,000 or at least €1,000 for people on an average wage of €52,000 and didn't tell me, if I was speaking to them, how much that was going to cost, said to me that it wasn't costed, you'd be all over them, wouldn't you? No, but what is clear here is about setting out where your priorities are. But how Um, how can you set out priorities when you don't know how much what you're suggesting is going to cost? Because if that costs, for example, one billion euro, then, you know, then you can't do X, Y or Z on social welfare or on pensions or on health spending. You know, it all comes together. So you you can't really make budget uh, proposals in isolation, can you? That's not how it works. It's not it's not a responsible way to do business. But what you can do at this stage of the budgetary process is set out where you believe priorities uh, should be based. Now, pause for a swig of coffee. You may need it. There will be priorities in the area of spending um, in terms of, you know, Minister Dunn, who is presently undertaking a review of the National Development Plan ceilings for 2024, 25 and 26. Blatant electioneering. I mean, it's blatant electioneering. There's no other word for it. 
But we have to look at the key challenges and risks there are to the state. Uh, housing is but obviously... Sorry, exactly, our, that's, housing sorry that's exactly the point. You're not looking at key challenges or risks to the state. You're talking about giving tax cuts to people. You're not talking about we how much it's going to cost. You don't, you don't know how much it's going to cost. You don't know how you're going to fund it. You've no proposals for getting the money elsewhere in terms of broadening the tax base from the, uh, as, as per the Commission on Taxation. So this is there not is about protecting the state. I don't. I don't hear anything it, in what you're saying about protecting is, the state. It is. It, it is absolutely about looking at the threats and challenges uh, to our economy. And one very clear threat that there has to be has is to Ireland. When you consider the amount of foreign direct investment we get, the very high value jobs that generate good incomes and generate a lot of tax for our mm. country. We are a country that by international standards have the high rate of tax kicks in at a very low income level for our workers. Yeah. That is a threat. Well, I'll, I'll know, I know you'll know that looking. actually what, what international companies are telling um, the Irish government at the moment that is a threat to, to their workers coming here is actually the housing situation. They can't have people, they, they've nowhere to put people. You know, that, that's, the, that's the main earlier, issue. As, as I said earlier to you there, um, you know, spending is a key part of that. This is a three-legged stool. There is about having a tax, pa- tax package. It's about uh, spending and, and looking at the ceiling limits and making sure all the available resources that are needed okay. for housing um, are spent and in, in terms of schools and education. But also then that anti-austerity fund, that is really, really important. When I was first elected in 2011, you know, we would have given anything to have. Junior Minister Martin Hayden on Drive Time. Now all of this was on a Monday and often what blows big at the start of the week is mere tumbleweed by Friday. In this instance, not so. In fact, on Friday, we had more detail, but instead of calming things, differing views as to the numbers of people that might benefit. More attention in Fianna Fáil because all week raised hackles. Finance Minister Michael McGrath conceded that an opinion piece in a national newspaper was an unusual approach, but he would not be bullied. Others were less discreet. Here's Audrey on Morning Ireland. Is Fianna Fáil furious about this? Fiona Sheehan, Ireland editor with the Irish Independent. Yeah, absolutely. So phrases thrown at me last night. A sniff of desperation, a new frontier, uh, fisc- fickle fecking around versus fiscal responsibility that it won't wash with the voters. So while, you know, Michael McGrath, Michael is more Dennis Irwin than Donald Logue and he's quite quite calm in all these situations as far as he'll go is it's unusual but within Fianna Fáil there is genuine anger uh, about this they feel that they are being undercut and undermined by, by Fine Gael uh, in, in this regard it's the first Fianna Fáil minister deliver as as minister for finance uh, in, in it'll be effectively 13 years uh, by the time Michael McGrath delivers uh, this budget uh, in October, they're trying to put across a, a message uh, that you know stability. It's all about job creation, economic growth, making sure that you then can can use the the fruits of those labour in the most responsible manner. Michael Grell last night talking uh, about setting funds aside, uh, addressing the the national debt, uh, putting more money into capital spending on things like housing and health. And meanwhile, Fine Gael are off burning the 50 quid notes to light the cigars. From Morning Ireland. But at a weekly Fianna Fáil meeting, Michael Creed was reported as saying they shouldn't take lectures from those who crashed the economy. Them's their fighting words. Or are they? Well, Fianna Fáil Minister Derek Caleary joined Cormac on drive time. And in his view, nothing to see here. 
Even Fine Gael junior ministers are dictating to a Fianna Fáil minister for finance how to run his budget. They want tax cuts and they're going to claim credit for it if it happens. No, Cormac, they're not dictating. Truth. They're making policy suggestions. There's a difference. And the policy suggestions will go into the mix. Michael McGraw will present the budget uh, and Pascal Donoghue on Budget Day. And there will be a lot of suggestions between now and Budget Day from within Fianna Fáil. Uh, from our other government partners and indeed from outside the political system and I'm sure uh, you'll have a lot yourself between now and then. Well, I'll that tell is you the one budget thing. process here. Do you know what? It's I don't see anyone from Fianna Fáil and nor do I hear it from you here coming back swinging at Fine Gael or putting them in their place for saying that you're still on probation or chastising Fine Gael junior ministers for uh, subverting the, the budgetary process. You seem to have no fight left in you in Fianna Fáil at all. Maybe Jared Howland is a, right. We have a fight. Where is it? Cormac, we, we're fighting by delivering for working families. We're fighting by the kind of investments that Michael McGrath made to support businesses through the pandemic, to keep businesses afloat. We're fighting by delivering record employment figures uh, at the moment. We're fighting by turning around a housing situation which is incredibly challenging, giving first-time buyers a chance, the highest housing supply uh, in many years. We're fighting You're by You're sidelined by Fine Gael and Sinn Féin, aren't you? No, we're fighting They're by... in the ring continually in terms of political fighting. They're in the ring continually. You can't even get in the ring in Fianna Fáil. Isn't that the truth? Political fighting, Cormac, as you describe it, doesn't deliver to people. Fianna Fáil delivers. We are delivering for working families. We're delivering on childcare. We're delivering for business. So yes, political fighting is part of it, but delivery is the most important thing. That's what will be. Uh, that's what we will be um, okay. uh, assessed on. And I've absolutely no doubt that Michael McGrath will deliver a very strong budget with Fianna Fáil priorities reflected in it. And then this from Clare to Fianna Fáil's Willie O'Dea. They've out Fianna Fáil's you, Willie. No, look, look, I mean, I think that, you know, people listening to this uh, will see it for what it is, a sort of a juvenile stroke. Fine Gael obviously are panicking about, uh, about, about about the polls and, the you know, we're now in the run-up to the local and, and European elections and the general election will follow shortly thereafter and they're trying to reassert their identity. But the fact of the matter is that Fine Gael can do nothing about tax reduction or anything else without the participation and support of Fianna Fáil. We are equally committed, as I say, to reducing tax, but also to helping the less well off. So, Mammy and Daddy fighting. Last word on this from Late Debate. Barry Lennon was joined by Labour's Aon O'Riordan and Fine Gael's John Cummins. Oh, and some texters. It I is. don't see an it op-ed is. written by three junior minister Fine Gael people talking about the crisis in the housing. What you're doing is red meat for your own and middle-class electoral base hoping, base, hoping that they'll vote for you rather than Fianna Fáil. Well, That's there are lots doing. of people getting in touch here to 51551 and perhaps they think it is an either or one here saying some proportion to the discussion, please. We are talking about a €1,000 tax credit. Let's get some perspective, please. But Pat in Waterford, he says if we are serious about saving the planet, we should introduce water charges what another person saying here there's a large section of society who pay for everything and get nothing it's about time someone spoke up for us and then another person here Fianna are you genuinely, Fall, are you genuinely nodding to that Fianna Fáil that, that, that people uh, get stuff for nothing well somebody here is saying that's Fianna not Fáil. what the, that's, that's not what, what the, uh, uh, do you want to read it out again there yeah. just, just read it again because this is what the Fine Gael Centre was, was nodding to no, let's, a, let's a large section of society who pay for everything and get nothing it's about time so what that what 
what, that, what that texter is referring to is pe- middle income earners Who that aren't entitled uh, to social no, support. Okay. Uh, they may get child benefit and they've okay. benefited well, from universal measures, but they don't get social support. And it's right and proper that we support those. I make no oh, no, apology you're feeding for into that. The narrative now. Right, well, we've we've months, into a we have right months to go on this one. So don't try and pigeonhole. We have months to go on this one. Lots of kites to fly in the budget, gentlemen, yet. That budget again, October. Back in a bit. Welcome back. You know, if you get annoyed, really annoyed, and lose it. Well, Darren Frahill on Morning Ireland brought us this. Former England and Manchester United player Phil Neville is the manager of Inter Miami in America in the MLS there. This uh, team is co-owned by his good friend David Beckham and results have not been going their way, to be honest, recently. Eight losses in 13 games and following the latest loss, a 3-1 defeat to local rival, rivals Orlando. He got a little bit prickly with the media. Here we go. We, we, we won five... We, can I finish speaking? Are, are you going to interrupt? Can I finish speaking? Okay, because I don't interrupt your question. Okay, so don't interrupt my respect. So, sorry for the language. The in in the sorry. What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) All the righteous gone out the window, and with the Darcy irritation, his phone app stopped working. He rang the call centre. So eventually, you have to make a call, and you get somebody. And this poor person is on the other end of the line. And I was quite frustrated. I apologised in advance, <laughs> saying that I know you're not the person, but I have to vent in some way. Yeah. Oh, and listening to all this, us and Conor Pope. Right. Now, what I'm asking you is, just in a bigger picture, how do we, as customers, sort of, to use this word, escalate our complaints to make sure that something actually happens? Yeah. Because you are getting somebody and that's their job and they'll they'll take the hit and they'll listen to me and they'll apologise and all that sort of thing. But does anything happen? Yeah, no, it's extremely frustrating and your frustration is not alone and most people would have would have felt that. And probably one of the lines that the customer care operatives in any operation, be it banks, fil- uh, telecommunications, is, like, is, is people like you and I going, listen, I know this isn't your fault, yes. but... Yes. And then you, the frustration comes out and it can be an extremely... I would imagine it's an extremely difficult place f- to work in a call centre, be it a bank or telco or whatever it might be. Now, your, the answer to your question is, first, you have to stay calm. There, you get nothing by shouting at these people no. because it's not their fault. No, right? I didn't shout. I no, didn't I, shout. I'm not saying suggesting you did. You, like, a couple of things. So, time yeah. your call well, right? Okay. So, early morning calls will be answered faster than calls okay, at midday, fine. right? For instance. So, if the call centre opens at eight, call at eight, right? Yeah. Next, next thing, you know. Take some notes. Now, I'm not suggesting you become a stenographer, but just like record the name of the person you're speaking to, the Mm. time of the call and any kind of call reference number that you get so that when you have to call back a second time, you can say, listen, I was talking to Johnny at 25 past seven yesterday evening. He gave me this reference number. This is my problem. Whereas a lot of the time we we just we're so kind of flustered that we don't take any kind of um, decide whether or not you need to make the call like would the web chat in your instance could web chat have resolved your problem yeah but but it it won't allow me to vent but the venting is (laughs) maybe I should just go to the back garden see the venting isn't doing your blood pressure any good so let that go but if you do want to get past the poor call taker you could try this one when when it comes to can I speak to a manager like the, the, the stock answer that they're all told is there's no manager available. So at that point, take a deep breath and say, OK, can I arrange a callback? Now, a lot of people don't like to arrange a callback because they think it'll never happen. And a lot of the time it won't happen. But 
similarly saying, can I speak to a manager? Oh, just please hold, sir. And then they'll come back 10 minutes later and say, I'm sorry, there's no manager available. They're on lunch or they're at a meeting or whatever it might be because there's never a manager available. So ask for the callback. And by doing that, you're putting the onus on them to make the call. And you if see my, yeah, do no, I appear to be blanking no, over no, here? No, you yes. appear to be getting more and more annoyed. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So I, I, now f- I now feel how the call centre operators must feel. But like ultimately, we are at the mercy okay. of these companies. Can you feel Conor Pope just getting a little bit agitated, a little bit hot under the collar? Just listen to what he's been driven to. The problem isn't our over-reliance on technology. The problem, as with so many things, is corporate greed. And all companies desire to maximise their profits by cutting costs when it comes to human beings and when it comes cutting costs when it comes to training. Like in a perfect world, the person who's answering the call to you from your bank or your telco would be paid €30 Euros an hour, would be empowered to deal with the problem and would be invested in fixing your problem and if they were to do that they could cut all the branches and cut all the physical infrastructure but just pay the bloody frontline staff that they that are their are their face of the company a little bit more and train them better now you're losing it now just relax no I am not I'm getting annoyed (laughs) there there maybe we all need a bit of Moncon I want to teach you an Irish word but I want you to really focus first So, can you breathe deeply for me a few times? Just inhale slowly, then exhale. Now, if you put your hand over your heart, you'll notice that your heart rate increases when you breathe in and slows down as you exhale. I want you to be calm and receptive for this piece. So make the exhale longer than the inhale. Immediately this will affect your body. Blood pressure decreases, cortisol levels drop, your temperature lowers, which cools the body and reduces anxiety. So just one more slow exhalation. Now, are you ready? The word I want to introduce you to is grin ant. Grin ant. It means awareness with discernment or recognizing the true nature of an object, an event, or a person. Seeing through the superficial and the surface, to the core essence of someone or something. It's connected to grin hull, which means lucid intent or the act of directing one's focus or consciousness to influence events or things or people. It's the way the druids and shamans and mystics and sadhus manipulate reality and influence the world. Grin Ahant and Grin Hull. I wish the language that the English occupiers had left us with had words like these. But alas not. And we have to make do with what we have. Mongon McGann from the Almanac of Ireland. But if you were thinking, well, I'm not a practising druid, this deep breathing needs some science to back it up, goddammit. Here's Professor Luke O'Neill with Brendan. I noticed recently you've been getting into the wellness space a little bit in the sense that you looked at the science of various um, breathing techniques recently and you're a convert. 
I am a convert. Really. Well, I, I wouldn't believe in it normally, shall we say? But uh, <laughs> there was a huge, there was a huge publication in a journal called Cell. Now, Cell to us, Brendan, is your Time magazine. When you see stuff there, you think it's probably true, you know. And in this study, they looked at different people's breathing patterns, and they've proven scientifically, controlled breathing decreases anxiety and stress and mood problems. Now, okay, now, so what's the trick? The, the ancients, well, the ancients knew this, as you well know, Brendan, the yogic breathing and stuff. You know, it's all about doubling down and exhaling. That's the phrase they're using. Okay. So if you, if you if you breathe in, say for four seconds, hold for seven, and exhale for seven. You know what I mean? You're spending longer exhaling than inhaling, right? And if you do that for five minutes a day, this study showed a lot less anxiety and mood. So even I'm even I'm doing it now in the morning. You know, so breathe in and then breathe out for longer. Double down on the exhale. And is it working for you? I think it might be. I'm not sure. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep going with it anyway. You know? Okay, Professor Luke O'Neill. You know, I thought it would be triggering talking to you again that it would bring me back to those dark times, but it didn't, it didn't actually. It was fine. I'll do. I'll do a bit Stay of control. Calm. I'll do a bit of controlled breathing, and I'll be all right. Exactly. And if all of that wasn't enough for you, more breathing, or rather, not breathing, on Arena with Sean. Don't draw your breath, or try to draw your breath as you listen to this. I defy you. mother like a double espresso that is body 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 four bodies from Dak Taladman and Andrew von Osted they're from Belgium and coming as part of the Carlo Arts Festival in June and if listening to that you had a little twitch felt the need to move they would only love it you're talking about an hour long performance is it in total that you, yes. that you have Andrew Yes, and we're all dead after the performance, but especially the dancer, of course. But it's it's something we we didn't want to make a, a soundscape, and then the last fifteen minutes had to be energetic. No, we wanted to pick up the pace and and shake everyone for one hour long and entertain them enough, but get into this 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 ritual together with the audience. It's it's the most fun if the audience joins us and dances along to the beats. Um, and it really encourages the dancer. It's it's beautiful when they're very quiet mm. in the beginning, our audience. They become, become very supportive of Matteo, our dancer, who's giving all he's got. He's giving all the love <laughs> he's got to the audience. And uh, the last 15 minutes, you just hear the people just scream encouragement, like, don't fall, don't fall, keep going, <laughs> keep dancing, keep dancing. Well, of course, the it's, best way they can really... do, the best way they can encourage Matteo is to dance with him. I'm guessing that's what you want the people of Carlo to do. Do. Yes, that would be beautiful. It would be absolutely beautiful if they would join us. And lyrically, it's pretty straightforward. 
Move, move, shake, shake, give, give, take, take, yeah, yeah, no, no, maybe not, maybe not, body, 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 booty shake, booty shake, booty shake, booty shake, twist, twist, turn, turn, up and down, up and down, slip, slip, slide, slide, back and forth, back and forth, give it a go, give it a go, give it a go, give it a go, go. Bloody hell, wrecked. Back in a bit. Welcome back. On Liveline, parents of adult children with special needs spoke to Colma Mungon. Their biggest fear, what will happen to their children when they die. Now, Colm spoke to many parents and each story brought its own challenges. The only constant, the lack of resources and support. Mary's son Barry is 36. He is autistic with profound learning disabilities. And she described just a little of her day to Colm. You, you don't sit for half an hour and have a meal together uh, because he's always in the fridge or he's stopped looking for more or he is somewhere where he needs attention. Um, you know, it's a 24-hour thing. Apart from the sleeping at night, he does sleep at night, but you have to be on alert. Um, and I do sleep very lightly because I am on alert waiting for him to get up. But um, and he doesn't do that too often. But uh, and do yourself and your husband get away? You know, on a holiday, do you get a break? From from what sounds like a, uh, a pretty active routine. Yeah, uh, we we have been lucky enough in that we have had uh, we had a break last year and we got away. But you know, we're depending. We're depending on family. We're depending on friends. We're depending on others. And I suppose you know, for us. It's not the now. It's not the here and now. It's the future that is the worry. And when did you and start the, with that feeling? You said at the outset, you know, that did it start when you realised oh, that he was autistic? Oh, was that it? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. But you see, he has a profound learning disability as well. So he doesn't understand. He's a two-year-old distaff in a 36-year-old body. You know, he, um, he oh, you worry immediately. You know, I'd say anyone who knows that the child yet to be born is going to have a disability, they would start worrying then while the child was in the womb. Oh, there's no doubt about that. You, you worry from the get-go what is going to happen when we're not here. And this worry has coloured every aspect of their lives. How did that change you as a person? Because most people don't have that when they wake up every day. They don't worry about who will take up their responsibilities after they die. So how much of a difference was that even in the way you looked at life? Huge. Absolutely huge. Our lives are completely different to those people who don't have uh, a disability within the family. The level of stress is huge. The worry always looking over your shoulder, always wondering where he is, always wondering what he's at in, within the same house. Um, when you go out, making sure you have hold of him, it is, I suppose, the we do notice that if we're lucky enough to get uh, a respite for a couple of days, the difference, and, and, and I feel quite disloyal to Barry saying this, but the, the difference is huge. And, and we absolutely adore him. We adore him, um, and I wouldn't be without him. But the difference between having a child with an intellectual disability, stroke autism, and not within the home is huge. 
And as she and her husband are getting older, she wants residential care for her son so he can ease into that while they're both alive to help him with this transition. The dream would be for someone to call me and say, great news, we have a place for Barry. We're going to start that transition whenever, in 2025, 6, 7, whatever. And we are here to help him through that. His brothers are here because I know that his brothers will look after him as well when he is in residential care. But they would not be here to take on that task when they work themselves. They're not home at 2.30 or 3 o'clock. But that is the dream, and it shouldn't be a dream. The years pass very quickly, and as we get older, I'm 69, my husband is 72, as we get older, the problem gets bigger. Uh, The worry and the stress uh, gets bigger. And like so many callers to Liveline this week, she was calling on the government for funding and resources. I know there are cries for funding for all uh, sorts of reasons out there. But these are people who cannot speak for themselves. They cannot look out for themselves. They cannot mind themselves. They need 24-hour care. You know, how much worse has it to be before someone decides we need to do something here? Mary with Column, just one of the many calls to Liveline this week. Now, I am hoping it is sunny where you are. And even if it isn't, go get yourself a cone. You're worth it. Go on. My favourite ice cream would be a corner with a big flake in it all day long. I eat half of it and then I take the other half out and eat it and then finish off the corner. It has to be a calippo, yeah? Calypso, calippo, yeah? Or like the push pops, you know them? I would be a fan of ice cream, yeah, but if I was, if I was eating ice cream, it'd be like HP, HP ice cream on the block, chopped down a couple of wafers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but if, if, if it's not ice cream, it's a calippo, yeah? I love a brunch. It used to be a, a loop-de-loop and uh, capitalism got a hold of the loop-de-loops. The chocolates aren't the same. They're a bit smaller. So I'd have to go with a brunch. I like eating around the sides first. Have you had a brunch already this year? Do you know what? Not that I can remember. I think we're sort of only coming into brunch territory now, aren't we? Oh, we're knee-deep in it now, sir. Those voices from Sinead Newell Hahn, who was all business, and in this case, the business was 19 Hines. I'm a little bit safe when it comes to ice creams. I like the 99. I don't even like a flake in the 99. Ah, I just on. like well, the 99. Not, is, is, is it, I don't think it's a 99 without a flake, is it? It's a, oh, no, maybe no. it's a 98. No, no, the, the 99 <laughs> is the flake thing. Uh, the, you're, oh. you're just you're just cone then. <laughs> that, that's the thing. <laughs> There's been loads of debate over the years why it's called a 99. And a man from Cadbury's once told me that the little flake thing was uh, in the catalogue of produce or products from Cadbury's. It was product number 99. That's where it got its name. There are loads of different theories and I'm sure somebody will offer up another theory today on 5155. And there you have it. Fake news or fun facts, we're not really sure. And here is a man who will be licking 99s all weekend long. It is very good to have you with us on what is truly a beautiful day. Um, Meteorologically, professionally, personally, (laughs) it's a gorgeous day. Fair to say, giddy form yesterday, indeed all week long, and who could blame him? His last Late Late Show after 14 years, stick a flake in that. And as you can imagine, a lot of love on the radio, warm wishes break a leg, you will be missed. But then, it turned into something 
of a smash and grab. In the emails and indeed on Instagram, I notice a lot of people starting to, you know, pick away at the furniture and saying, can I have that? Can I have that? I mean, it's quite remarkable. <laughs> can I? The coffee table is lovely. Thank you. Can I have it? No. What? It's 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 a set. Like it's not my house. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dead. Uh, <laughs> but there is a nice story from Martin Caffrey. He says he, he said I married my wife Brenda in August 1975. One of the first items we purchased was an oval-shaped glass-topped coffee table. We were both very proud of it, and it was beautiful. But alas, some four years later, it was smashed accidentally with a baby bottle just being placed on it. Some of the glass bottles, those old days, uh, once upon a time. Now, when we saw a coffee table exactly the same on your set, we constantly admire it. And my wife wishes that she had it. My request is, should there be a redecoration of the set next season, which I'm sure there will be? And if it's within your ability, is there a chance that we could have it for our home? Well, you know, fair play for to you for the, for the chutzpah of asking for it. Oh, I think that's a no. But they just kept on coming. All right, can we have that coffee table? I want to see lads. Can I have the owl behind you on the set, please? Uh, says Gabrielle. Will there be anything left uh, by midnight if, if, if we start stripping the place down? Can I... <laughs> Somebody, can I have the whole studio, please? Absolutely. We're going to box it up and send it to you. Just send us your address. I'm going to throw the whole lot in a van at uh, quarter to 12 tonight. And at this point in time, it is all over, but a whole host of fun times ahead for you, Ryan. You can be sure. On Wednesday, the death of a legend, Tina Turner. Every single song hit and so many more. Just after the news broke, Dave Fanning joined Sean on Arena. This is really sad news. What what a loss to the world of music, Dave. Ah, uh, well, I mean, like, she's been there from the very, very beginning of it all. And that's, I suppose, the main point. I mean, she was, like, 
what do you call it? And, you know, I can see the 57, Kings of Rhythm and all the rest of us. That's 57, not least in all the stuff with... Uh, that she did later on with I Tina Turner. Obviously, River Deep, Mountain High, It's Going to Work Out Fine was a great song, I remember. In fact, funny enough, only last night I was at Three Arena to see John Fogarty. And, of course, he played the song that he wrote that she made famous, which is uh, Proud Mary. And, uh, obviously, Boy City Limits and all the rest. And yeah. then all that fell apart by 76. That's what she was going to do. Always go along with the kind of hits, tours and all the rest. And then everything changed. Because I was just talking yesterday too about ZZ Top. For both of them, a thing came along called MTV and there were videos. And suddenly, in the 80s, what a, a change of career. And like she brought out this album that just was one of the biggest selling albums of the 1980s. Nobody expected that when but they I, lived through a kind of a non-1970s of her. Yeah, but that seemed to be one of her great abilities was to reinvent herself in many ways and, and move with whatever the market, whatever was needed there. But it wasn't, it wasn't kind of some kind of cynical market response. She just seemed to be able to tap into a zeitgeist and to move with things in, in a very artistically honest way. Yeah, that's exactly the way it was. And with all this, what's love got to do? I mean, Private Dancer was the multi-platinum album that she saw. Just incredible stuff, like Grammy Award for Record of the Year and all the rest. And then she kept going with that. And then there were movies as well, don't forget. The Thunderdome and all those kind of ones, you know. GoldenEye, James Bond. So many different parts of mm. what she did suddenly became part of, as you say, of the zeitgeist. But she seemed to almost create single-handedly. Also in studio, Stephen Benedict. Uh, she's a woman of phenomenal courage. She was a phenomenal survivor, a black woman to escape in a phenomenally abusive relationship. And this, this, the really, really sad thing was that the guy who was abusing her was the guy who actually made her early career. And then to escape that. And as Dave said, in the 1970s, this sort of the career almost vanishes. But as he said, she appears in Tommy and she reinvents herself to be actually much more successful than she was ever with Ike Turner. And I think she she presented herself as a role model for survivors across the planet. I remember she played in, in Crow Park in the 80s and what struck me, I, I simply couldn't understand, was the very, very first time I'd been to a rock concert where there's practically almost no men. Now, I was a young kid, right, and I got the ticket as a favour from a friend, so I went along with just these women and I really couldn't understand it and it wasn't until my, into my adulthood that I understood the, the importance of Tina Turner and musically, maybe David could correct me here, but I don't think if you don't have Tina Turner, you don't get Beyonce. Oh, we would not want that. But so many artists Oh, so much to Tina Turner. On Morning Ireland, Justin McCarthy spoke to Britney Spanos of Rolling Stone, who tried to sum up her talent and her legacy. I, I think there's such a, an ineffable charm that Tina had. There's so much to, to love about her. And it's not just her voice, of course, which is so iconic and carried incredible hits for decades. But it's that performance, it's that smile, it's those those legs, it's everything about her stage power, star power, that is just really hard to to contain. So, you know, and also it's just her honesty. She was herself. She spoke very candidly about what she experienced, but she also spoke candidly about the fact that she was so much more than her trauma and what she had endured. She was so much stronger than that, and it showed in everything she did. There's no part of the music industry that, has not been touched by Tina Turner. Every artist is either directly or indirectly inspired by her. And on Liveline, musician and super fan, Brian Kennedy, who had toured with Tina Turner in 1996. She was like a goddess. 
and basically we were her tribe in the middle of this huge stadium and she was in complete control she looked otherworldly she was complete and that voice ringing around that stadium it was like old ancient roman times or something watching a goddess arrive to take control of the earth for that moment in time by then you know What's Love Got to Do With It? The movie was coming, all of those things. So people were aware of her incredible struggle to get out of that horrible situation with Ike and to go through all of the lean times and all of that. And then suddenly there she is with the biggest beaming smile. And even when she took it down acoustically and just did, you know, uh, all kinds of little acoustic versions of songs. And, oh, man, it was like, it was just incredible. Did you get to meet her on the tour or was it more observing from the wings? I certainly did. We got the, finally, we got the word that Tina would like to meet you kind of three quarters of the way into the tour. So we were lined up, my, myself and my band and Toto, all lined up like kind of, you know, like schoolboys. And then the limousine appeared at the end of this kind of little track and the window went down and there's Tina. She didn't get out of the car. She offered her hand through the window. I leaned over and she said, I'm so glad to have you on this tour. You sound incredible. She was amazing. And then the, the, that was it. So that was my brief encounter with her. And then maybe the car would go on another 10 feet and she'd get out the other side onto the steps in the heels in the silver dress and go on and basically knock everybody dead for three hours then get back into that car and and off she went like it was like she was dropped down from space just for us for a couple of hours and then there she went back to her galaxy again it was extraordinary the only way i can describe her is a hurricane in high heels tina turner legend well that is it from this week's playback thank you for listening talk to you next week I was a little girl